An interesting new study of though looking at uh, the oil sands and, and addressing some specific myths about the long-term economic viability of the oil sands. Now, obviously, extracting oil from the oil sands and being able to do that initially, right, was, was a tremendous technological breakthrough and has been a real boon to, to Alberta and to Canada. But it is a more costly means of extracting oil than other more conventional, you know, drilling into the ground and, and the oil shoots up. But there's been this notion that because of the higher costs of uh, oil sands development, that once we see a peak in demand globally, whenever that is, and I don't think it's, it's around the corner necessarily, uh, that the oil sands are going to be the first to go, that they're just not going to be economically viable at that point. So this new study from the C.D. Howe Institute is addressing what they say is a myth around this, that even with the drop in oil prices, even as low as $40 a barrel, a Western Canadian select, oil sands producers will be able to keep producing. So why, why does this myth persist? Why is it important to address it? And I guess, how do we know? How do we know these questions around viability? Joining us to talk more about it is the author of this study, which you can find at cdhow.org, Kent Fellows, uh, fellow in residence at the C.D. Howe Institute and an academic advisor and contributor to the Institute's energy policy program. Kent, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. So first of all, let's start with the, the why it's important to address this or to better understand this. So what, what kind of prompted this study on your part? Well, I think there's a couple of important things here. I mean, the first and foremost is just thinking about the economic future of Alberta and the economic future of uh, producers that are already active in the oil sands. Um, you know, we have, as you said, that they're a, um, a notably high-cost producer, and uh, a lot of people saying, well, if and when uh, global crude oil demand starts to fall, they're going to be sort of the first uh, back out the door. And and I don't think that's true when you look at the cost structure. But the other side of this is looking at Canada's climate objectives, right? Mm-hmm. And, and there seems to be a lot of policy that uh, implicitly or explicitly kind of assumes that the oil sands will just go away for economic reasons, and that, you know, in, the, in sort of the mid-transition to far transition, we, we won't have to worry about those emissions because we just won't be producing. And I don't think that's true either. So as we think about those future, you know, for climate policy and for economic policy, uh, it's really important that we understand the underlying cost structure, not so much thinking about expansion in the oil sands, but thinking about the producers that are already there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Now, you know, the idea of, of higher cost or high cost is somewhat subjective, but I guess by comparison, uh, there are higher costs associated with the oil sands, but is this a suggestion maybe that those costs are being overstated or that we're underestimating some of the, the uh, efficiencies that, uh, that producers have achieved? How, how do we measure this? So it's, it's tricky, um, and it's really hard to get an apples-to-apples comparison here. The, the cost structures are just so different. So if you think about sort of that conventional production or non-oil sands production, um, and I'm going to oversimplify here, but, you know, what the producers do is they sort of hunt for oil. The geologists tell them where they think it might be. Uh, they punch a hole, and uh, if they're if they're uh, right, then they start producing out of that well. Uh, and the first couple of years you produce out of a conventional well, you get quite a bit of oil, and then over time that production kind of drops off. They, they continue producing for quite a few years, um, but you get less and less every year out of the existing well, so you have to keep punching new wells. 
in the oil sands, um, the, the sort of planning is completely different. I mean, we know where the resource is. We got a pretty good idea. Um, I've heard people in the industry compare it. You know, it's the difference between hunting and farming. That in the oil sands, you go up there, you build your oil sands facility, whether it's a surface mine or uh, a steam plant. If you're if you're doing what's called in situ production, which is subsurface production. Um, and then you kind of just uh, get going more like a sewing machine. You know, you, you you punch a hole, you produce out of that hole, you're pumping steam down the well, or you're you're scraping uh, oil sands when it's surface. And, and those declines at the project level don't really exist. Once you've got an oil sand project set up, um, they kind of just chug along. So they're really, really costly to set up. But once you've got the money in the game, once you've actually built your facility, um, it'll keep going for years, decades, uh, without significant production declines, you know, you have to keep doing a little bit of work on it, um, but the carrying costs uh, aren't as significant. That the significance is that upfront cost, which is which is quite a bit bigger. And for the oil sands producers, we already have. They've already made that commitment. They've already made that decision. Those projects are already there. Right. So, what do we see then as as kind of that price bottom or that that price floor when it comes to to production? So we're actually really lucky in Alberta that we have some fantastic data now that the provincial government mandates and collects that lets you do some really neat calculations, uh, some of which I do in the paper. And when you when you sit down and, and sort of stitch together all the costs of getting uh, oil sands bitumen from an oil sands project to the the hub, which is you know where we where we calculate the price. We hear about the the Western Canada Select price. That's a specific oil price at a specific hub. Anyways, if if you if you add all those costs together, it depends on the project. But most of these projects are running at a per barrel cost to get oil to the hub, anywhere from about ten dollars to forty dollars a barrel. Um, and so that's a Canadian uh, dollar, and, that, and that's a West Canada Select barrel. So you you have to be a little careful comparing that to say a West Texas Intermediate price, which is the U.S. price, which is usually in U.S. dollars, but uh, regardless of how you do the calculation, that's pretty competitive in North America. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty competitive cost structure to be able to get your, your crude oil to a hub um, at a reasonable cost. Right, and I guess there would be a difference, as you mentioned, and, and you described it in the paper, as the legacy oil sands production, right? Sort of the established players of the established projects versus maybe smaller players or, or newer projects. Yeah, and and that's that ten to forty dollars. That is sort of the what we call the cash cost. Or I'm putting on my sort of economics professor hat. We call that a marginal cost, which is a, a term out of a first year uh, econ textbook. And that is that that doesn't include your contribution to the capital. So that upfront fixed capital expense, um, you do want to make a little bit more money than that if you're in the oil sands to to pay for your capital. But anyone who's already committed, anyone who's got a sunk cost, they'll keep producing as long as as the price is above those cash costs. Um, for a new producer to think about entering, well, they're going to want a higher cost because they're going to want some indication that they'll be able to pay off that capital over time. Um, um, but for the ones who are already in, yeah, they'd like a higher price, um, but it makes more economic sense for them to continue producing than not continuing producing as long as the price is above the cash costs. You compare that to um, conventional producers, and, and they have a slightly different calculus. You know, They want a slightly higher cost because they're always making a decision on whether to to drill a new well and how many new wells to drill every year. So this is looking longer term, but I guess what do we mean by longer term? I mean, we could look at 2030 where the government's got some targets looking forward further to 2050, for example. Like, what, what do we mean by long term here in this context? 
So long term is a is a really interesting phrase, and I'm 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 going to go a little bit down an academic rabbit hole, so I apologize for that. Um, but, but when you talk about short term and versus long term, you know these are these are words that we throw around pretty casually. Um, inside of economics, they have a very specific meaning that a, that an economist talking about the short term, that's the period in which uh, you can't make adjustments to capital, so you can't invest in a new you know anything shorter than thinking about a new oil well. Uh, so for a conventional producer, short term is measured in a year or a couple of years because they're constantly making that decision on how many new wells to drill and, and where to drill them. Um, for an oil sands producer, producer, short term could be decades because you've committed with the oil sands plant and you're making a decision whether to, to build a new plant. And so that's really this, this thought space when we think about the dynamics of this. Um, if and when that, that global crude oil demand starts to fall, um, those conventional producers, they'll fall off more quickly because they'll be able to make faster decisions that, okay, you know, we're not going to drill a bunch of new wells this year. Whereas the oil sands producers are going to look at the price. They're going to say, I'm still making a little bit of money if I'm, if I'm producing, if the price is above $40, I'm going to keep doing that. So there's a lot of speculation out there on, you know, when we're going to hit peak oil, if we're going to hit peak oil, what crude oil demand looks like for the next five, 10, 15, 20 years. Um, I'm I'm trying to do as little of that speculation as possible, at least in this study, and say, okay, when that starts to happen, who falls out of the market first? Yeah. And I think there's pretty clear evidence in the cost structure that it's going to be the conventional guys or the fracking guys before the oil sands. They, they'll fall out considerably later um, in terms of stopping production because they do have that cost advantage, at least on the marginal side of things. So the existing producers, they'll keep producing. Well, and that's both interesting and significant. As you alluded to earlier, there are policy implications here because there are a lot of assumptions that have gone into uh, some of this longer-term planning around uh, emissions policies. So what are the implications here as you see it? So I, I think the big one is is uh, thinking about the, the two main ways that we could reduce emissions from the oil sands, right? And And one way is to cut production. But if you cut production, you're producing fewer barrels, Obviously, your emissions are going to go down. They'll go down in the upstream where you're producing it and potentially in the downstream if no one's consuming it. Although there's speculation there that even if we cut production, unless that global crude oil demand falls, people will find somewhere to to buy their crude oil. Um, The other way to reduce emissions is reducing the emissions intensity. And so that is making investments to reduce the per barrel emissions. So how many tons of, of CO2 emissions or CO2 equivalent you produce per barrel of crude oil that you're producing. And you hear a lot of this from from industry and from regulators that they really want to focus on that intensive margin, getting the carbon intensity down, getting the carbon out of the barrel, they'll say, um, because it is still lucrative to produce those barrels as long as people want to consume them. And and so there's that question of, you know, if we don't produce it, someone else is going to produce it anyways, uh, potentially. And so there's really a focus there on carbon capture and storage, you know, might be an option. Or there's... um, a lot of industry R&D in, in reducing what's called the steam oil ratio, so producing less steam, so you have to burn less natural gas to get the same amount of oil out. And so those investments are there, they're happening, um, but as we think about future policies, you know, is there a way to incentivize that, um, and is there a way to do that at low cost so we're not using resources we don't have to use? Very interesting. Uh, much more is mentioned, cdhow.org. Kent Fellows, thanks so much for joining us here this morning. Really appreciate this.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.